Greetings members old and new, and welcome back to the Possibility Department, your one-stop shop for the modern-day occultist. If you find yourself entertaining the possibilities of anything and everything when it comes to the great unknown, then this is the place for you. My name is Luciana and I'll be your host as we dive into what I like to call spiritual and psychological templates for living our lives, interpreting our lives, and creating change in our lives. Take what you like, toss what you don't, and remember that what we talk about on this podcast is just as far-fetched as the concept of any higher power. Alright, let's talk about some weird sh- Hey everyone, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Possibility Department podcast. Thank you so much for being here. I have a super- exciting interview for you today. I interviewed J. Allen Cross, the author of American Brujeria, Modern Mexican-American Folk Magic is the name of the book. And for those of you who are on Patreon and watching the video, I'm holding up the book now so you can see how beautiful it is. It is a gem of a book and we go over a lot of the concepts of the book in this podcast and in this interview kind of on a surface level so that you can get a taste for how magical this book truly is. I'm so excited for you to hear this. We talked about magic, we talked about tradition, we talked about saints. I was able to make some personal connections myself and make some realizations, which you'll hear and listen to, but I know that you're going to love this. I know that you're going to love this book, so stay tuned until the end because I actually received an extra copy from the publisher and I'm going to be doing a giveaway. And I know you're going to want this book after listening to this. So make sure you listen to the end for the details on how to enter into that giveaway. Also, um, J. Allen Cross has a podcast called Invoking Witchcraft, which I'm going to be linking along with all of his social medias and everything like that. So make sure that you follow him, you buy the book, you're going to want all of this information because it is just... chef's kiss. (laughs) This interview was gold. Uh, But we can't go any further without thanking my sponsor level patrons. These are the patrons over on level three and level four who are going that extra mile to help the possibility department become something bigger, badder, and better. And we just had a workshop Um, Our April workshop was creating an astral altar, which was super cool. Um, An astral altar is kind of like a mental sanctuary, a place that you continuously return to in your mind and you sort of train your mind to continuously go back to that place. And we just had that workshop which was probably one of my favorite workshops yet. The unedited version, we were on there for like two hours. It was super fun. Uh, The edited version, I think, is down to like an hour and a half, an hour and 30. But um, if you want access to that and all of my other workshops that I've done, I've done pendulum workshops, intention setting workshops. Um, We did a round table with favorite practices. If you want access to all of those other workshops, plus the entire meditation library, come visit me on level three and become a sponsor level patron. So thank you to my sponsor level patrons, Gemma, Benna, Sydney, Sandra, Brianna, Jewel, Amy, Susie, Mariella, Erica, Brittany, Ingrid, Karen, Tara, Joanne, Noel, Sarah, and Luna. Thank you all so much for your support over on Patreon, for ensuring that the Possibility Department continues to do what it needs to do out in the world and um, discover talent like like Jay. Um, I'm super excited for you to hear this interview 
And without further ado, I hope you enjoy this gem with J. Allen Cross. All right. Welcome to the Possibility Department podcast, J. Allen Cross. Hi, thank you so much for having me here. Yeah, I've been super excited to have you on. You're the author of this amazing book, American Brujeria. Um, and I've been interested, I'm always interested in the cross between modern American life and the modern American experience and any kind of Latin American superstition or folklore or magic or, <laughs> you know, the, that balance between those two um, always interests me endlessly. So I think the first place where I want to go as far as questions is in your book, right off the bat, you talk about this experience of sort of feeling in between, you know, suspended mm -hmm. in between these two cultures and struggling with identity. I think the way you put it in the book is, am I the past? Am I the present? Am I the future? You know, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm this mix of all of them. Where do I fit? And I think that's something that a lot of Latinx kids, like myself included, all feel at some point. So I was wondering if you could kind of shed some light on that experience for someone who doesn't understand and how that led you to author American Brujeria. Absolutely. Oh, gosh. So growing up, you know, a, a person of mixed race where my mother is pretty much 100% indigenous Mexican and my father is, of course, white. And so growing up in especially a place like Oregon, too, it's not like I grew up in Texas or New Mexico or things yeah, like yeah. that, you know, where you're kind of removed from these places. Um, you very much feel sort of stuck in between or in the middle. And whenever I talk about this, either I bring it up or somebody else does, there's a scene in the movie Selena where her father is shouting about, you know, being Mexican-American, you had to be more Mexican than the Mexicans, and you had to be more American than the Americans just to prove that like, you know, you, you have a place in this world. And that's something that a lot of us, a lot of us feel. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of us who grew up kind of in between of, of two cultures, and, and of course, this goes for people who are, you know, mixed, you know, black and white or, or Asian American and, you know, all these things, any sort of mix will, will kind of feel this, but I can only kind of speak for the Mexican American perspective. Um, you feel very rejected by both sides. Because when you go to kind of hang out with the Americans, you're too brown to hang out with them. And you don't really fit in very well with your, your normal white Americans. And you kind of face racism from them as well. You know, trying to grow up with white friends in the United States, um, you know, even in joke or sometimes not in joke would receive, you know, racial slurs, you know, Mexican jokes, all kinds of stuff. But then you turn around and you see Mexican people who have either just immigrated here or whose parents are fully Mexican and you go to hang out with them like, hey, I'm one of you. And they're like, no, you're not. Yep. Yeah. You're nothing like us. And that's very, very hard for people who are stuck in between because neither side wants us, neither side claims us. And I really kind of grew up thinking I'm kind of the only one because it is a very lonely, isolating experience. And it wasn't until I began kind of speaking about this uh, a few years ago that I realized I was definitely not alone. In fact, there are many, many, many people in the United States right now who feel this exact same way. Yeah. My story isn't new. It's not unique. It's in fact, it's just like a whole bunch of other people, um, which really got me thinking. And this is a, a very sort of painful experience for a lot of people. And so what I wanted to do was I wanted to move forward and I wanted to um, not only validate that, you know, we are valid individuals, you know, of people who are, who are both, you know, Mexican and American. We are 
we are both, and yet at the same time, we are neither. And as I was kind of going over this idea in my brain, I started to realize like, oh, this is, this is very much like a crossroads or uh, a liminal space as yeah. we kind of talk about it in magic or, or witchcraft, you know, these places where um, these between places like a crossroads or, or midnight, you know, which is between two days or, or the beach where the you know, ocean and land meet together. Like these, these in-between places where two things come together um, are very powerful magical places. And then I began to realize I'm like, oh, well, as a mixed person, I am one of these places myself. And then therefore, so are all of these other people here who I share this story with. And so that's something I really like to bring attention to because you know, you'll know you notice it says on the front of the book, you know, it says American brujeria. It doesn't just yeah. say traditional brujeria like, right? Right? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. that's not what this book is about, right? This book is about Mexican Americans. This book is about, you know, those people who are both. And it's really funny because we are an island unto ourselves. You know, people kind of forget about us um, here being caught in the middle. And then that creates a sort of loose community. And whenever we have a community like that, especially one that is marginalized, especially one that faces things like um, poverty or any sort of need, uh, folk magic will come out of that because any, any community that is pushed into a marginal space will have to turn to magic eventually. Right. Yeah. And where we kind of get that here in American Brujeria is this is stuff that was passed down to us by our grandparents or our parents or our great 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 grandparents or whoever kind of you know immigrated here brought over with them their beliefs of things like curanderismo, brujeria, magia, like all these things um, kind of get passed down to us piece by piece. And then we sort of put it in a giant pile and 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 work with it in that manner, which is a little bit unique. So in, in some of these Latinx um you know, countries like, you know, Mexico, these are all very individual, distinct, separate paths. Mm -hmm. But when we kind of immigrate forward, we take a little bit of everything from everywhere and put it into one sort of basket. And then we call it brujeria here, which yeah. is very different from the brujeria in Mexico. Um, but that's kind of our liminal power there is to kind of do that. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. No, that definitely makes sense. That, and also, brings up the question is it is it called brujeria in mexico or is it just like this unsung thing that you don't really talk about because i feel like in and this is just from another perspective but i talk about this a lot like in my experience in brazil in my childhood they did there are traditions that seem witchy now when i look back on it but it's like it's not called witchcraft that's you know what yeah. i mean like it's just embedded into like the christian culture yeah. um so what's that dynamic like in mexico is it called witchcraft or well, so it's, it's very different over there. So uh -huh. in, in the United States, we tend to throw everything magical under the heading of witchcraft. True. Yeah. And that is not the same thing in, in Mexico. In Mexico, we have very distinct paths. And, and brujeria is not just a catch-all term for all magic over there. Brujeria is a very specific form of, of, of magic. So it's like when okay. people say like, oh, well, like not all witches are Wiccan. Mm -hmm. It's very similar. Like brujeria is a very specific type of magic that people okay. um, and, and people get confused a lot and think that just because we're going through this reclamation of witchcraft isn't actually evil in the United States, that it then goes for all countries and places and cultures. And that's not that's not how this works. Yeah, yeah. People are afraid of brujeria for a reason. It's mm -hmm. very dark. It is very forceful. Um, and it's it's a very um it's kind of a gruesome practice. There's a lot of kind of animal parts that are involved. It's, it's, it's very intense. And so 
it's something that I've been trying to define a line between mm-hmm. when it comes to what we call brujeria in Mexico and what people have been calling brujeria in America. Because in the United States, people are like, oh yeah, just kind of any sort of Latinx magic from any sort of Latino country is going to be brujeria. And that's not how it works outside of our little bubble, right? Right, yeah, yeah, definitely. So <laughs> that's why I wanted to make sure that I didn't just call this book brujeria because that would be completely wrong and right. it would erase culture. And that's something that we've been seeing too. People put out books and they're like, this is a book of brujeria when it's actually a book of curanderismo or hechiceria, which are very different forms of magic mm-hmm. from Latin America. And so I wanted to make sure that if I was going to talk about the modern day folk magic of my community that I didn't also at the same time erase a lot of, of the actual magic that's happening in other countries at the same time. I wanted to kind of showcase my community without also damaging right. my community at the yeah. same time. Um, so and a lot of people don't understand that. A lot of people these days who are who are some sort of Latino living in the United States will call their magic brujeria, not realizing that it's very different once they actually go to their mother countries, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. yeah. So what is what is the practice that you define as American brujeria then? Like what does it take that is traditional and mm-hmm. how has it been sort of like modernized for the modern experience and also the American experience? <laughs> Absolutely. So um, it, it, there's a few different things that we have to understand. So when people immigrate, they bring with them as much of their culture as they can um, into the United States. And then, and a lot of people who immigrate from Mexico are very big believers. They have a lot of faith, whether that's in God, whether it's in magic um, or superstition or whatever it is, they're going to bring it over with them. The issue is, is that once we hit the United States, our resources are different. The things we have access to are very different. So for instance, um, Curanderismo um, is a Mexican folk healing practice. And well, I mean, it it happens all over Latin America, but again, I'm only really speaking for Mexico here. Um, And in in places like Mexico, you can go and find a curandero or a a curandera and get a healing or a cleansing done on you. And that's very beautiful. They have professionals who are handling that. You come to the United States And sure, curanderos and curanderas do exist in the United States, but they're few and far between, especially the legitimate ones. Mm -hmm. And so that forced a lot of people who are immigrating to then take that work into their own hands. So in the United States, it's different because we don't necessarily go to a curandera, but you go to somebody's tia or their father or their mother, or you go to a friend's parent or uncle or grandparent or something to get a limpia done mm-hmm. on you to take off the hex or the mal de ojo or, or, or something like that. So we don't have the same um, kind of pillars, spiritual pillars of the community that they would have in a place like Mexico or Puerto Rico or Yon Cuba or any of these places. Yeah. So we have to sort of do it ourselves, which is, which is new um, and kind of a, an, an interesting thing that we find here. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, once we get to the United States, the United States, of course, is, you know, quote unquote, the giant melting pot or whatever it is, because we're all kind of sharing and moving. And so you see a lot of crossover between things like um, like hoodoo and Southern Conjure um, that kind of get overlapped with sort of Mexican folk magic because it does all kind of handled in the South. There's a lot of kind of crossover and some exchange that happens in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Those are things too that will influence and change how we think about the magic or how we go about it, um, or 
our approach to it as well. So there's a, there's a lot of kind of jostling that happens post-immigration. The way I explain it in the book is it's like, you know, you have African voodoo, and then you have Haitian voodoo, and then you have New Orleans voodoo, and then you have, you know, all these places post-immigration, you're going to find kind of um, deviations from the path. Branches, and that's what we're yeah. seeing here. Yeah. So what was the process like of uncovering the traditional stuff then? I know you talk about in the book how you um, you interviewed people's moms in their tias, right? So like, right. What <laughs> so what was that process like? That must have been fantastic in like a myriad of ways. Right. Well, I read all of the the, the good books that I could find on, mm -hmm. on the work. And there's about three of those. Um, and so once I was done um, in about a week, I began to branch out to people. Um, around me, because when I when I pitched this idea to Wiser and they accepted, I was stoked, and then I was terrified, <laughs> because I'm like, you know what, like as a person in the culture who's already doing this magic, you know, I do have experience, I do have knowledge, but I don't feel like I can just stamp my experience on top of my entire community and call it like, you know, good enough, like the, right. this matches all of you because yeah. it doesn't. So I began calling everybody I knew who was Mexican-American or like from Mexico or had grandparents from Mexico or anything like that. I just started calling everybody that I knew. Uh, my mother works at a, at a Mexican-owned restaurant. So I went down there. I was talking with waitresses and bussers and servers and, you know, line cooks and everybody um, getting their stories. And it was so interesting because I would sit down with them and I'd be like, okay, like this is what I am uh, writing the book about, you know, it's about Mexican American folk magic. And they'd be like, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm not a brujo. Like I don't do any of that stuff. Like you, you, you've got the wrong person to talk to. And I'm like, just, just, just stick with me for a moment. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I'd start with something like, um, did your parents use Vicks vapor rub when you were growing up? And they'd be like, oh yeah, you know, of course, of course. I'm like, cool, can you tell me about that? They'd be like, yeah. So like my mom used to do this thing where she would take uh, the Vicks Vapor Rub and she would mix it with salt and her saliva. And then she would like rub it on in the shape of the cross. And then they'd go, oh, that's magic. And I'd be like, yes, it is. Yeah. And then they'd and then like their minds would be blown. And then they'd be like, wait, so what about that thing where like, you can't sweep over somebody's feet or else they won't get married or you can't go to their yeah. wedding or like all this stuff. And I'm like, yep, that too. And they're like, and then like um, keeping scissors under the bed, that's magic too. And I'm like, yes. And then they're like, oh God, because they didn't realize it's yeah. such just a normal part of who we are as Mexicans and Mexican-Americans. Yeah. This stuff is just baked right into who we are, uh, into our life. And it's not seen as weird or as magic mm -hmm. because it's just, it's just what we do. And so it was so great to not only hear how their families kind of interacted with this magic, but at the same time, get them to realize how magical their lives already are. Right, yeah. And that was very neat. So I, a lot of the research was just talking to people, hearing what their grandmothers told them or their tias or their parents or, you know, all these things and, and find out um, how all these different families kind of went about the same, the same things. Yeah, that's so interesting. And it it resonates for me on a personal level because I'm, I'm married to a Mexican-American man. And um, 
we've had crosses in between our cultures. It's so interesting. Like we'll talk about superstitions that our parents had or things that we heard when we were kids. And it's like, there it's, it's the same kind of superstition or practice, but like slight deviations from each other. Like, I don't know if you've ever heard, like you can't step over a child or they won't grow. You know what I mean? Like yeah. if they're playing on the floor, like <laughs> little things like that. And I just, I find it endlessly interesting, but so what are your like go-to daily favorite, um, I was going to say brujeria, but American brujeria <laughs> practices that, that you do daily or that you like whip out in a pinch? Like what are the favorites? Absolutely. You know, I, people discount the power of prayer so much and it's so simple and it's so easy. And I think that's why people shy away from it because they think that simple automatically equates to weak, but I found it to be opposite. I found if there's something I really need, I go much simpler. Um, And I find that if I try to overload the magic or go too hard or or make it too complicated, it's it's always, it, it, it never works out, right? You can't clutter the magic. So something just as simple as just lighting a candle and saying a prayer is so powerful. Yeah. And that's something that I kind of talk about a little bit in the book. We talk about, you know, learning to pray. Um, I teach you just to pray in general. Um, I, I teach you in the book to pray the rosary, which is is really important. And I also give all the prayers in English and in Spanish because learning to pray kind of in that mother tongue is, is so um, deeply spiritual and also very emotional for a, a lot of people, especially those of us who didn't grow up speaking Spanish. Learning to speak Spanish um, is a very emotional process for a yeah. lot of people, kind of reconnecting with that culture. Um, but yeah, so, you know, prayers... Um, cleansing is so important in our world. Um, and again, it doesn't have to be super complicated. You don't have to take a bath with 27 herbs or whatever, but just like, you know, throw a handful of salt, you know, into your bath water or, you know, take an egg and, and rub yourself down with it and take off, you know, any gossip that people might be saying about you, things like that, you know, especially if you're in the public eye in any capacity, these are all very simple things that can be done. Yeah. Um, I'm familiar with the egg process, but for listeners, can you explain what that is, what you just oh. said? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So sometimes that, that concerns people. I, I I went to an event where I was I was giving limpias there mm-hmm. and so many people who are not familiar with the culture, I and I don't know why their brains went here because I'm like, yes, that makes total sense. Thought that I was there to be cracking eggs on top of people's heads. Oh my God. (laughs) And I'm like, oh yeah, absolutely. That's what I'm here for. That sounds like a great idea. Um, (laughs) But no, that's not how it works. So in, in our culture, um, and again, this is found all over, you know, Latin America, um, there's something called a limpia con huevo, which is um, a cleansing done with an egg. And so you take an egg and you basically rub a person down kind of from the top of their head all the way down to their feet. And of course, every household is going to do this different, not necessarily every country or every, you know, state, it's every household will do this right. different because it's, you know, folk magic kind of rolls that way. And so you, you, you rub a person down and the idea is that you are pulling um, either like a hex or um, astral parasites or, um, you know, bad energy off of them, things like the evil eye, um, things that we call invidious, which is um, like, like envy or gossip or, you know, any of those stuff, you can pull that off of a person with an egg and then it goes into the egg. Um, 
And the egg does double duty. Not only is it sort of absorbing all of this, but it's also a sacrifice. It, it is it is a kind of a life form that we are then sacrificing to um, these higher spirits, whether it's God or, or you know Guadalupe or any of these higher spirits. Um, it's it's a sacrifice and an offering to them. More so than that, it's also a divinatory tool. So once we kind of scrub ourselves down with the egg we can then crack it into a glass of water and then look at what it does. Um, and that's a very complicated process. And, and I don't necessarily go into it in the book uh, because I was only allowed to have 65,000 words. And let me tell you, my end manuscript was exactly 65,000 words. Oh my God. <laughs> and I had to make a chop somewhere. <laughs> yeah. So um, that, is, that is not in there, however, um, if you uh, follow Erica Buenaflor's work at all, she teaches um, egg readings after the Limpia and she is wonderful. Highly recommend all of her work and her first book, uh, Cleansing Rites of Curanderismo is invaluable to anyone interested in this work. Okay, I will link that uh, below definitely. What's her name, Erica what? <coughs> Erica Buenaflor. Okay, cool. Um, well, could you explain, because I see this also a lot on your Instagram, could you explain the uses of scissors and oh. Vicks VapoRub, which you go to through extensively in the book, but just give people like a taste, like what are those used for? Absolutely. So scissors are used all over the place in, in Mexican folk magic. They're really, really useful. Um, they tend to be used mostly for protection work uh, because not only are they blades, they're very sharp, they're also very pointy. Um, and in their shape too, making an X is a very kind of like a blocking uh, symbol. Yeah. And so these are used all over the place where protection is needed from anything. Um, one of my most favorite uh, spells or what we call Ichizos in the, in the book is um, from my friend Rosanna and it's from her family. Her parents came from Guanajuato and her mom taught it to her when she was a kid. And you take a pair of scissors and you open them and you place them in the window and you say this prayer to San Benito, which is St. Benedict. And the prayer loosely translated um, kind of means like, like um, San Benito go, San Benito come, San Benito grab that witch that comes flying is, is how it translates. It's, it's supposed to keep witches out of your house, brujas, from wow. coming in. Because uh, in Mexican culture, you know, witches aren't just like misunderstood healers in the cottage. In, in Mexico, brujas are like um, these creatures that fly at night and steal the eyes from cats and all kinds of stuff. Um, right. So you want to keep them out of your house. Yeah, definitely. For sure. <laughs> um, so like, you know, you can use them for that or it's very common for people to take open scissors and place them like... Um, and again, there's so many variations, right, from house to house. So we ask some people, um, you know, if you have nightmares, what do you do? Well, you take the open scissors and you put them under your pillow, or you put them on the nightstand, or you put them under the bed, or you put them under the bed on top of an open Bible, or you tack them to the wall above your head, right? So there's, there's yeah. all these variations of it, but the idea is that you can use them to kind of um, ward off evil or, or negativity or things like that with scissors. We can also do a lot more with them. Um, there's a lot of rites too, as well as um, using them in sweeps to take off um, hexes and curses and then burying them is, is something that we do as well. Um, so there's all kinds of uses for scissors. They're, they're, they're very much a part of this work. Um, and then the Vicks Vaporub, I, I was, I felt so it needed to be put into the book. I have the, I have a section in the book called La Brujeria de Vicks Vapora, um, which yeah. is like magic with it. And it's dedicated to my great grandma, Lena, 
who like all of us who have, you know, great grandparents, of course, from a Latin American country, just believe in the power of VIX. And like, I'm talking overboard, like, like I, I get so many messages from people with these recovered memories about their grandparents eating VIX Vaporub. Oh my God. Just like scooping it out, like on their finger and just like downing it or like um, putting spoonfuls into like their morning coffee or tea or oh things my God. like that. Do not do that, by the way. You're not supposed to do that at all. But it's very common for like our people because we just really believe that you know, VIX Vaporub <laughs> is there to like heal everything. And so yeah. I was kind of looking at it and I'm like, okay, but this also does sort of make sense from a magical perspective. The reason why VIX Vaporub has that very distinct smell is because there are plant spirits in it. There are camphor and eucalyptus. And these are very heavy cleansing, um, opening, very holy kind of um, energetic plants. Um, I I talk about them as being kind of borderline angelic. They're so high vibrational. They're so um, clearing to the senses and uplifting and elevating that it's, it's, it's no wonder that we would use it for healing and for curing and for um, a lot of times too, people will use it to like drive out evil spirits and stuff like that. And that's something I talk about in the book is that these plant spirits of like camphor and eucalyptus are so powerful in that regard that even if it's in something like VIX, it still counts. Wow. (laughs) I mean, I I knew about like the popularity of VIX, but I'd never heard about the eating it physically. That really oh, yeah. like threw me for a loop right there. Was that, like, did that's you only just for say, like the really hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> I do not recommend it. My my great grandma Lena, she was known for it because she would use it for everything, right? So like you had a headache, she'd put it on your head. Um, you had a stomach ache, she'd put it on your stomach. Uh, you couldn't sleep, she would put it on your eyelids. Don't do that either, it's a bad day. Um, and also of course, because she's devoutly Catholic, um, she would put it on the children's hands before bed to discourage any um, personal exploration, as we say. Wow. Um, so that was my great grandma Lena. Um, she, she was a little crazy, but like in a good way, um, she was known to, um, if someone was on her lawn, she wouldn't just be like, hey, get off my lawn. She would run out of her house with a carving knife, screaming in Spanish at them. <laughs> and I'm like, get it, Grandma Lena. Like, that's that's awesome. Oh my God, that's awesome. Wait a minute though, do, do people not put Vicks on their stomach when they have a stomach ache? Is that not normal? Because my dad told me to do that when I was a kid. Is that not something that regular people do? <laughs> like, you know, if it works, it works. With a lot of the stuff, I'm like, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Like, you know, hey, <laughs> you got to put right. that paper up on your stomach. Go for it. Yeah, I'm and sitting here wondering what the use. normal, what's the normal use for Vicks VapoRub then? <laughs> because I do remember like my dad putting it like obviously under the nose and on the forehead, uh-huh. but also when I had a tummy ache, putting it on like my stomach. But now I'm thinking about it. I'm like, is that... Do other people is that just the latin american community <laughs> a lot of times too people will talk about um that you'll put it on on your feet and then put socks on over it um, that too a lot of he people used to talk do that. about that yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah so shifting gears a little bit back to like um prayer and the more spiritual side and devotion mm-hmm. you have this whole chapter that's dedicated to saints um which is super I mean the way you describe each saint and kind of the it feels almost like a working relationship which is really Mm -hmm. interesting um so I was wondering if you could kind of talk about what the relationship with saints 
looks like? Are they different from other deity figures? Do people mm. who practice with saints typically have like a a main saint or a main set of saints that they work with, mm. like a favorite? How does that work? Absolutely. So saints are are quite a bit different from like deities and higher spirits and things like that because they they are they're just people. Mm-hmm. There are people who, for one reason or another, showed. Um, a great connection or a kind of a miraculous connection to the divine or to the higher powers. Um, all kinds of saints uh, did things in life like uh, showed miraculous healing or um, there, are, there are some, um, I'm trying to remember, I believe it's Saint Joseph Cupertino um, who would levitate um, and so is a patron saint of like airmen and things like that. <laughs> um, but so them being um, people, like humans, regular people, they're so much closer to us. These are these are essentially dead people. Yeah. Um, which is where we get into this whole, like the church is very against necromancy, but this whole saint thing is calling upon the dead. And Catholics really like to also like dig up the saints and take like their hand with them and keep it as like a quote unquote holy relic. And I'm like, that's really necromancy is, <laughs> I never but, thought of that connection. That's true. That is very, I, I yeah. think the same thing of Day of the Dead, though, too. Yeah. It's like, it's we're literally inviting the dead into our houses. Anyways, I'm interrupting yeah. you. Keep going. No, but absolutely, right? So, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. these are all dead people. And, and in understanding that, we realize that they they have been here on earth. They have lived through it. And, and as such, they're so much closer to us, not only spiritually, like they're closer to earth, but they also understand what it's like to be alive, what it's like to be a human person. They're, they're so much more understanding. Whereas once we get higher up into like angels and, you know, seraphim and things like that, they have no idea mm-hmm. any of that. And so you're like, I have human problems. And they're like, so like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Sometimes you pray to angels and you're like, can you help me with my suffering? And they're like, great. So you're dead now and your suffering's over. And you're like, no, that's not what I meant. It's not what I meant. Right. Like, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Saints, saints are much more understanding of the human experience and what we need. Um, and therefore are a lot more sympathetic. And so um, a lot of times people will have favorites that they, that they connect with the most. Um, and that depends on a few things. Like sometimes um, people will really, um, will be a part of a church that is dedicated to a certain saint, like, you know, St. Paul's something or other, and then they have that devotion to them. Or, um, you know, it can be like a vocational too. So if you're like an innkeeper or a waitress or um, a a maid or a housekeeper or anything like that, you would probably be working with St. Martha, who is patron saint of such things. Um, And she's also a total badass um early feminist icon she's known in the bible for really sassing jesus um, what? <laughs> <it's> <laughs> <yeah. awesome. laughs> so like saint martha real quick so in the bible uh jesus and his crew kind of like roll up into this town called bethany and they start staying at this inn mm. and at the inn there's this there's mary of bethany which some people are like eh, that was mary magdalene but some people are like no mary of bethany was different anyway mary of bethany was just enamored with Jesus, just adored him, sat at his feet all day while he talked and talked and talked. And she's like, oh my God, you're so cool. Her older sister, Martha though, was having none of it. She was having none of his patriarchal bullshit. And she's like, she's like, um, Mary, get up. We have stuff to do. We need to cook. We need to clean. We need to do this stuff. And Jesus is like, why should, why can't you just be more like your sister and sit here and listen to me? And she's like, do you want to eat? Like, <laughs> 
<laughs> so like there's there's even like a book out called like how to be a Mary in a Martha world um, wow. she's very kind of looked down upon in in modern Catholic society but she's also one of the coolest saints too so there's another story about like after the bible and everything kind of went down where they went and there's a story where she kind of stumbles across a um, a town that's being um, kind of terrorized by a dragon and so she goes to face it and she tames the dragon ties it up with her girdle strings which is like I'm like, what? that's a very feminist symbol there. She takes off her girdle strings and takes up a dragon with it. She leads this now tame dragon back to the city and is like, look, I've taken care of this problem for you. And everyone freaks out upon seeing the dragon and they murder it. Now, some people, some people, and, and don't quote me here. Some people say that this is the seminal story for Beauty and the Beast, where there is a young beautiful, charming kind of virginal woman who shows up and tames this awful beast that's been terrorizing a town. And then once she tries to show them, look, it's good, they can't see past their own fears and end up killing it. Um, wow. So I don't know if that's true or not. It's something that I have heard, um, mm -hmm. but you never know. But yeah, so St. Martha is awesome. Um, you know, working with her, I work with St. Michael a whole lot. He's really neat. Um, and as a medium too, um, I sort of connect with them very viscerally. So I, I get to kind of know their personalities and whatnot. Um, so St. Saint Michael actually really surprised me. I was expecting him to show up in like a blaze of light and, you know, smite me for doing witchcraft or, you know, whatever. It was, I was kind of very apprehensive about calling upon him. But like, as soon as I did, like, this sort of like very cool, like kind of Dean Winchester vibe guy like shows up in like a leather <laughs> yeah. jacket and is like, what's up? I heard you need me. And I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> like, was not expecting that, but also I love it. So. St. Michael is the, is the same as the Archangel Michael. Is that correct? Yes. Or those two different? Okay. Because I've heard mm -hmm. of people talking about their experience with Archangel Michael and it's a similar mm -hmm. cool guy, but also like really protective vibe. Yeah. It's so interesting. Yeah. So how does one work with saints then? Is this, um, what is the concept of, do people petition or do you mm. do like the, the promises fulfilled? Like my, my Catholic Brazilian grandmother has all sorts of stories about <laughs> promises fulfilled via saints. So like, is that the only way to work with saints is like an exchange with a promise or how does that work? No, you can kind of go about it a few different ways. Some people kind of venerate saints simply because they see something in them that they want to embody. Mm -hmm. Like um, a lot of times, you know, people will will kind of venerate um, Joan of Arc because she was such an interesting character and they really liked her bravery and her ability to go forth and, and they feel kind of like a connection with her. Yeah. Like, you know, like I, I feel sort of the, in some way, the same way that I'm going forth into the unknown or that I'm leading a battle or whatever. Yeah. So, so sometimes they'll just simply feel connected to them on a personal level and therefore kind of have a veneration with them. But kind of a, a big part of saints jobs in the afterlife is to um, do what we call an intercession, which is kind of them um, coming in and doing something on our behalf to help us out. And it's believed that the way an intercession works is that they don't necessarily go and do it for you, but instead, if you ask them to, they will go and talk to God on your behalf. 
because they're kind of higher up already. So it's kind of like asking your friend with connections if they can call like this person and get kind of a deal for you Yeah, is is the idea. So, um, and and they have different specialties too. So um, like if you have a, a hopeless case, like something that's like beyond hope, you know, that's just like absolutely like there's no way to turn this around. You would um, call upon St. Jude, um, who's that's kind of his area of specialty, or um, I believe also St. Rita is a uh, hopeless case saint as well. Um, If you need to find a lost object, you call upon St. Anthony, Um, or if you need help with animals, you call upon St. Francis. So they all kind of have their own specialty that they work in. Um, And you simply just kind of, um, it's, it's, it's polite to, you know, off, give them an offering, um, something like a lit candle in their name, um, or you can give them food or like drink, or, or you can um, donate money to charities in their name as payment. Um, and it depends on who you ask. So, so some people will just give that outright while they're asking. Um, other people will say, I will give that to you when I see results. Oh. Um, so there's kind of different ways of going about it. And then in some cultures too, we have saint punishing which is if you've been asking a saint for something, like say you've been asking St. Joseph to um, find you a house and he hasn't, and you've been asking and asking and asking and nothing's come through, people will do things like um, stick St. Joseph in the back of a, of a drawer full of junk, like the the, the statue, they'll put them in oh there. God. Or <laughs> they'll even like um, stick them upside down in a glass of water um, until uh, they get what, the, what they want. Now, I don't necessarily suggest this that sounds Um, scary (laughs) right well and it's i i love um mary grace farron has a has a book on italian folk magic that i absolutely adore and she tells a story in it about one of her aunts um had a special connection with one of the forms of mary and when she was mad with this form of mary she would get a, a saint card like a prayer card and take her cigarette and burn out the eyes and later in life she said that her aunt um, started to go blind oh and God. her aunt was like well figured that was coming oh my like, god no <laughs> so I'm like like you know as long as you're on board with the fact that they're probably going to come after you at some point like then, then I support it as long as you know like if, if she was like you know oh I can't believe that this is happening to you know, you'd be like well what'd you expect but she's like nah I knew wow. <laughs> it's like, well as long as you know <laughs> Oh my God, that's so interesting. And you mentioned Saint Saint Jude as lost causes. Is Saint Jude the same as as Saint Tadeo? Is it Saint Judas? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, San Judas Tadeo. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So I'm making a connection now. My grandmother's story was with um the one that she tells over and over with was we call him Saint Tadeo, mm-hmm. and she had like complications in her pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And um, she made a promise to Santa Deo that she would remain bedridden for her entire pregnancy. And if her baby was born, she would name her baby Tadeo. And uh, yeah, and I mean, he's my uncle. He's my uncle Tadeo. So obviously uh, it all came to fruition. But that's so interesting. I just made that connection right now that it's the saint of mm-hmm. lost hopeless causes. Is that what you said? Yeah, hopeless causes. And they'll also have like a bunch of different kind of like subcategories too. But that's what he's most known for. Yeah. And they, they, tend to call him by the full name, either by just like the Tadeo or the um, San Juras Tadeo, because um, 
Judas is, is you know, Judas. Right. They, they have the same name. So for a really long time, nobody wanted to pray to St. Jude because they were afraid that they would accidentally be praying to Judas who betrayed Jesus. Oh. So that's kind of where the miraculousness came in because when, when people finally did start um, praying to him, he was so excited <laughs> that he just like came through for people really intensely. And that's how he kind of got this, um, this very miraculous uh, reputation. Wow. Uh, and, and you'll find that too, because people, you know, they want to work with the big saints. They want to work with Michael. They want to work with Joseph. They want to work with Christopher, but there are thousands of saints that no one has ever heard of before. Mm-hmm. And if you go to one of them, they're so excited when you do. They're like, I haven't had like a customer here in 20 years. Like they just like roll up the red carpet. Like, I'm so happy. What do you need me to do? So I always tell people like, they don't overlook the lesser known saints. They're yeah. not less powerful. They're just less popular. Wow. That's so interesting. And I guess it makes sense that she told the story as Santa Deo and she named her kid Tadeo and not Judas. Right, exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh my God, that's awesome. Um, so for someone who's wanting to get started, like with this kind of magic and this may, might feel very like overwhelming, where would you recommend for someone to start? I would start um, specifically with the story of Guadalupe. I would start there and, and with working with Guadalupe. Um, a lot of people who want to do the Mexican stuff, they immediately just run directly to Santa Muerte. And that's just, I, I, I don't necessarily recommend that. Um, you know, work with Guadalupe, you know, maybe get a Guadalupe statue, hear her story, you know, why she might be important, um, especially for those people who um, feel kind of in between because she is very much a kind of an in-between type spirit. Um, because on one hand, she's Mary, mother of God. And on the other hand, she is a kind of indigenous Mexican goddess known as Tonantzin. And that's like an, a, kind of like a mother earth, almost kind of Gaia type, um, like uh, mother of the corn, you know, all these sacred things that come forth from the land. Um, they're, they're very much syn- syncretized together. And they, um, the vision of Guadalupe um, looks very similar to kind of the indigenous version of, of Tonantzin, their mother. Um, and also too, there's a lot of weird stuff that comes with Guadalupe where um, if you look at the picture from one side of the room or the other, she'll either look very indigenous or she'll look very European depending on which side of the room that you're, that you're viewing her from. Wow. Um, so she is kind of this liminal mashup of two different things. And we don't really see that with the other Marys so much. Um, right. Things like, you know, Our Lady of Lords or, you know, whatever. We, we don't really see um, that with them. And she is such an important figure when it comes to Mexican magic and Mexican spirituality and belief. Um, that's why I'm always a little bit concerned whenever I find a book on Mexican magic. And there's just like, if anything, like a paragraph about her in it. And I'm like, Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> We're gonna so my book, I have like this whole chapter on like her story, um, you know, building an altar to her, working with her. I even get out like the red string at one point, because there's all kinds of really weird um like number things that come through with her. Like the number 12 keeps getting repeated over and over and over again. Um, 
and yeah, it's just, there's, there's a whole lot of stuff going on in there. Wow. I had yeah. no idea about the, the liminal space or her being representative of both, I guess, like this, this almost like European Mary, but also like a very mm. indigenous Mexican figure. That's mm. so interesting. Um, yeah, I'm going to have to read that whole chapter of that book a couple of times. And I love the idea also that she's representative of that liminal space, which you talk about so much in your book. And it's like this, this place of power and magic that you get to be in between two things that you don't have to necessarily fit in, in boxes, if that makes sense. Right. Um, but with that, so something that I think that's important to touch on is you know, we're all kind of like looking at our magical practice of, over the past couple of years, and we're becoming more mindful of uh, cultural appropriation, you know, looking at our practices and wondering where did that come from? Is it okay that I practice that? Things get reproduced over and over again that you might find a piece of information and think that it's just like, I don't know, open copyright, you know what I mean? And, <laughs> and not realize that it has its origins in something that's actually really closed and really sacred. Um, and so since we're being more mindful of that, I, I kind of wanted to ask the question, you know, how do you feel about people of non-Mexican descent um, reading this book and sort of taking in some of these practices? Um, personally, I'm I'm okay with it to an extent, of course. Um, I, I think it's, it's important for people from outside of the culture to read about our culture um, simply because it's pretty much proven that once we educate people in other cultures, they're less likely to be racist um, once they understand these other cultures, these other places. So I, I think it's very important that we share this knowledge um, as much as we can. Um, cultural appropriation is something recently that's, it's, it's turned into a few things because I do love that we are having this conversation and um, really kind of fighting against cultural appropriation because it is something that definitely needs to stop. However, in the last couple of years, there's been this snowball of um, you are not allowed to learn about, look at, think about other people's cultures at all. If you touch anything that has an ancestry and something that you are not 100% a part of, you're not able to do that, blah, blah, blah. And it's it's getting very concerning at this point. Um, so the, the and honestly, I blame TikTok, but uh, the, <laughs> the, the, the new thing um, that I've heard recently is that um, plant magic is a closed practice. You're not allowed to work with plants unless I guess you are one. Um, <laughs> I, I have friends call me that they're they're so sad that they can't drink margaritas anymore because margaritas are from Mexico and they're not Mexican. And I'm like, okay, we need to calm down a little bit here because this oh is getting God. out of hand. Um, <laughs> yeah. I love that we want to be culturally sensitive. I support that, but also we are going about it the wrong direction. Yeah. So in my book, I, I do have a section that is a guide for people from outside of the community who want to learn about and work with this magic. And in that guide, I asked them to examine their relationship with Mexican people, um, what they are doing to either help or hinder the community. I asked them to examine that and see if they are being a good ally and if they're not, how they intend to change that. Um, and I also give my three kind of questions to ask yourself if you're worried about cultural appropriation. And those three questions are very simple. It's, does it make you money? Does it take up space? And does it erase culture? If you can say no to all of those questions, then you're not committing cultural appropriation. 
So for instance, um, I'm Native American, right? If a white person comes to me and, um, or, or just say, just in general, there is a white person somewhere who um, has, is having nightmares. Can they purchase a dream catcher and use it? Absolutely. Especially if they are purchasing it from a Native American person. That is, that is important, um, supporting them, things like that. Can they make their own dream catcher? Yes. However, the moment that they then begin to open an Etsy shop selling dream catchers, that's a problem. Yeah. Right? Right, yeah. If they just make one for themselves, hang it up in their room, great, cool. They learned about our culture. Like they're not hurting anybody. They're not taking up any space. But as soon as it turns into a business, as soon as it, it starts becoming competition for indigenous people, as soon as they um, put crystals on it and call it a crystal catcher and start selling it, that's a racing culture, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so so these, these questions are very simple. And, and then... I feel like that also helps people relax once they know where the lines are. You can still have a margarita. Just don't wear a sombrero and a funny mustache while you do it. Like, you know, yes, like, yes, yes. like yes. <laughs> right. We it, like, it's, it's fine. Right. It's, it's absolutely fine. And, and people are like, Oh, well, like, I love this, this cleansing method you have in your book, but I'm not Mexican. So I can't use it. And I'm like, okay, but here's the deal. If, if you've just read my book and you've just learned about, you know, an egg cleansing, like we were talking about earlier, and suddenly something goes down and your cousin is like super hexed, you know, they, they were in a, a graveyard and they stepped on someone's, you know, curse that was left in there or whatever. And you know, no other way to do this. I want you to go forth with the egg cleansing, right? right yeah, I don't yeah. want you to go, well, you know, I, in my ancestry says I'm only like 12% Mexican. So I'm just going to let you die. Um, no, I want you to use the egg cleansing. Like yeah, this yeah. is okay. As long as you don't tell people you invented it or just because you do an egg cleansing, you're now a brujo or, you know, like as long as we're, we're not then taking the next steps afterwards, um, yeah. I, I think it's, it's okay. I love that. And I love that you created a guideline because that is so needed, <laughs> especially in the spiritual community where, like I said, information gets, um, it gets sort of like recycled over and over again. And mm -hmm. you might do, be doing a certain practice and then you come to find out the origins of that practice. And then you start questioning, like, is, is that okay? Should I be doing mm -hmm. this? You know, and we've needed a, a guideline, like a set of questions to be able to ask, to know, although a lot of it is pretty, I mean, intuitive one should know that you shouldn't sell something that isn't culturally yours you know what i right. mean yeah but it's sometimes even in our private practice you know what i mean we're all we're all taking a look and examining which i, I think is good mm -hmm. um but to have a guideline like that i think sets the mind at ease as well so yeah. how do you feel about people taking since this is american brujeria and it's kind of a mash how do you feel about people taking ideas and spinning them off to create their own practices? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that is okay as long as we understand where the boundaries lie. Mm -hmm. So for instance, I kind of give this, um, this example in the book where it's like, okay, say, say you are following American Brujeria to a T. However, you don't like the Catholicism. So you take out the saints and Guadalupe and all that, and you put in Hecate and the Greek gods instead of saints and stuff. Okay, can I stop you from doing that? No. But the moment that you do, do that, 
it's no longer American brujeria. It's no longer Mexican American folk magic. Right. And to continue to call it that is a problem. Yeah. So if you want to burn novena candles at your Athena or Aphrodite altar or whatever, like, fine, you're not hurting anybody as long as you don't try and say like, oh yeah, novenas are are Greek and, you know, or, you know, whatever. Right. Yeah. um, like, you know, that, that, then it kind of gets into a problem there when we're, you know, erasing culture, putting out misinformation or, or things like that, you know. And similarly, we can't practice Wicca and substitute the goddess for Guadalupe and then call it Brujeria. Right, That's yeah. something that we've been running into as well. People like writing books that are basically Wicca and then being like, uh, this is Brujeria. And it's like, no, it's not. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so it's like, you know, if you want to do that, then it's like, okay, you can do that. But um, we have to know then what, what that makes it. At the same time too, like there's little things too. Like we use the limes for cleansing. They're excellent for that. And if you're like, oh, wow, that's something I now learned. And now I want to apply that in my Wicca practice where if I'm making a cleansing bath, you know, I might add lime to it because that sounds like a great idea. Like, I, I think that's rather innocuous. I think that's fine. Yeah. As long as you don't claim that it is a Wiccan practice to do so, you know, it, it's all about kind of what we do next from there that is that kind of separates it from cultural appropriation or not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this conversation was so necessary and so illuminating in so many ways um so where where can we find you obviously i'm going to be linking your book that everyone should run and go buy but where can we find you on social media absolutely so you can find me uh, mostly on instagram i i'm also on tiktok i didn't mean to but i became a tiktok star um you did kind of you are accident. a tiktok star yeah <laughs> <laughs> i just started making videos there because their editing software was easier and then i was sending them over to instagram and then people ended up really liking it so um i'm accidentally on tiktok um and i'm on twitter as well all of them are at oregon Woodwitch. my uh, home base is Instagram, which of course is at Oregon Woodwich as well. Um, and that's where you can keep up to date with everything that I'm doing. Um, you can hear about the book. I do workshops, classes, and I do this work full time as a career. So I do um, spells for people. I do readings for people. I do, um, I do spiritual coaching. So if you're wanting to learn magic, you can come to me and set up sessions with me and I will teach you um, all kinds of stuff. So Instagram is my, my home base right now. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this, Jay, and taking time out of your day. I'm sure our listeners are going to love it. And I had a blast and learned a ton. So thank you. Thank you so much. I had a great time. Well, there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed this interview. As always, don't forget to rate and review the podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, if you enjoy my content, share it with someone, share it on social media, which brings me to our giveaway. So I'm going to be doing a giveaway of an extra copy of the book that I received. It is brand new. And in order to enter, it is an Instagram giveaway. So what I need you to do is take a screenshot of this episode. So take a screenshot, you know, of you're listening to this episode, take a screenshot. You're going to put it on your Instagram stories and make sure that you tag me at the possibility department on Instagram. And then feel free in that story to let me know how you enjoyed the the podcast or the interview. Um, And then the second part 
of the rules of the giveaway is that you have to be following me, you have to be following J. Allen Cross at Oregon Woodwitch, and you have to be following Wiser Books, the publisher. And don't worry, I'm going to have all the handles linked um, below in the description for this podcast, wherever you're watching it or listening to it. Um, And then I'm also going to have a post on Instagram outlining those rules as well. So if you're listening to this and you're like, I don't get it, head over to my Instagram and uh, there's going to be a post with a picture of the book that will outline the rules. But basically just take a screenshot of the episode, put it on your stories, tag me in your stories, and then make sure that you're following me, the author, and the publisher. And um, you will be in the running for for winning this, this amazing book. Um, and the giveaway will end on May 17th. That will be the last day to enter. So this is coming out on May 3rd. May 17th is a nice chunk of time for you to be able to enter to win. And I will be contacting you via Instagram. You will have to, of course, be comfortable with sharing either a P.O. box or an address with me. Um, And we don't have to do that on Instagram. We can do that via email. But yeah, I hope you'll enter. Um, I hope that you will run and buy this book if you end up not winning the giveaway and uh make sure to follow jay on all of his his socials and keep up with what he's doing thank you so much for being here remember that if you enjoy these interviews you can watch the video version on patreon if you're more of a visual person and you can do that at just the five dollar a month level level one and become a part of my little community over there so thank you so much for being here Um, I hope you have a great week ahead of you and stay mysterious.